Children are dismissed at this time to Children's Church. Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4 this morning, verses uh, 13 uh, through 17. Romans uh, chapter 4, 13 through 17. Listen then uh, to the word of God. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What is, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, uh, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you'd watch over us, that you would guide us and direct us to your word, that we would be uh, listening with an eager ear and a hungry heart, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well, that we would be a people who rest upon Christ and take joy and pleasure uh, in all that he has done. Give me uh, the words to say regarding this passage and may the power of the Holy Spirit uh, be at work in our midst. Uh, We just pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, uh, you can kind of sometimes date yourself by the things that you know in pop culture. Uh, Last night in my house, we were playing some uh, music videos on on YouTube just to kind of show my daughter what was in style when we were teenagers. And uh, it made us feel dated, and our kids thought we were nuts and and old. Um, However, this morning, uh, as you think about introducing this passage, when I was a teenager, there was a cartoon uh, characters by the name of Pinky and the Brain. So now some of you, you don't know those at all because you're too young. Some of you, uh, you are raised on the classics when it comes to uh, uh, cartoon characters. But but Pinky and the Brain were, were these lab rats. And every night they would break out of their cage. And Brain was this smart one and Pinky was the nerdy, uh, dumb one. And Pinky would say, every night he would say, Jay, Brain, what do you want to do tonight? And then Brain would say, Pinky, same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world. And they would hatch these crazy plans and, and they would try to take over the world. And they would always get like, this close to taking over the world and something dumb would fall apart. Usually it was Pinky would mess something up for Brain uh, because Brain was the genius. But the point is they had this plan all the time to to take over the world. And I only set that up as an introduction to this language here of the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world. The promise is given to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, they would be together, the heir of the world. And so when you think about the gospel, when you think about salvation and what it entails, it 
it certainly entails going to heaven when we die. It certainly entails uh, the, the good news of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of our sins. But it also entails being the heir of a kingdom, of, of an inheritance, of the entire creation will come under the heirs that, that we inherit, if you will. So we are not trying to take over the world like Pinky and the Brain, but rather as part of the gospel, the world is given to Jesus Christ, that he rules over all things. And so we get adopted into this family. And as Paul says in Galatians, we become co-heirs with Christ. And you think about everything that's going to happen in the future when the Lord Jesus returns He will rule visibly over all creation. And then after the great judgment, there will be the new heavens and the new earth. And guess who becomes the heir of all things, of everything, of the entire world? It's the seed of Abraham. It's Abraham and his descendants. And we are in a passage of Scripture where where Paul has been continually trying to tell us that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the gift of righteousness like Abraham did. And Abraham is your spiritual father. The promises of Abraham that have been fulfilled in Christ now apply to you. And so this is a good plug to say, read your Old Testament. But we become heirs of the world. So, this morning, our main point is you must have faith in Jesus to receive the promise of the gospel. To be an heir, to come to partake in this, you must have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And you think about some of the people that Paul is writing to And they are physical descendants of Abraham. And they would have said, we have Abraham as our father. Of course we are the heirs. The new heavens, the new earth, that is for us. Well, why? Well, because I'm a child of Abraham. Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3, all these things that he did as a good Jewish person. Paul's encountering people every day like that. And maybe even some people in the church that were taking a bit of pride in their status. Our identity and our status to us, our position as heirs of the kingdom, comes only through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must have faith in Jesus to receive the promise of the gospel. So, first this morning, you will only become an heir of the promise through faith. The only means of partaking in this promise, of receiving these blessings, of being part of of the Abrahamic covenant that God has made, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have Faith in God like Abraham did. Now, one of the things about this passage, as you work through it, um, it's really hard to know where to break this passage up. This is one argument that Paul is drawing out. And if you think about how the early church would have heard this, 
uh, they would have gotten the letter from Paul. They would have unrolled the scroll or however it was sent to them. And they would have just read the whole thing on Sunday. Just, that's it. Read the whole letter. Um, that would take a little bit of time. Also, if I didn't break this passage up and if we tried to make it all one sermon, uh, that would probably take a lot more time. So, so I'm breaking it up and it's somewhat arbitrary, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to keep drawing uh, your attention to what's come before and what's come after. And if you feel like you've heard some of this last week or next week, you feel like you're hearing some of the same themes again, just keep in mind, it's, it's all one passage, but we'll try to pay attention to the, the details. So Abraham was given the promise. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So this promise goes back to Genesis 15 that we've talked about. But you see it already as early as Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abraham and says, uh, take up and we're going to go out from the land of Ur and we're going to go down to the land where I show you. And he says this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the, and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's this idea that all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the, the families that are out there will be blessed in Abraham. Then if you go down into Genesis chapter 13, God takes him out and he takes him up onto a hill and he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. So it's, it's saying, hey, look, look all around. He says, for all the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring. I will make your offspring or your seed as the dust of the earth so that no one can count the dust of the earth. So your offspring shall be counted. Walk through the land and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. And that right there is where we get the idea of the promised land, right? When Israel comes back from Egypt, she goes in and she starts driving out the Canaanites. Why? Because this is the promised land and there are are boundaries to it. But what's fascinating here is Paul takes this uh, aspects of the promise and then he interprets it as extending so that Abraham is promised to be heir of the world. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law. And so you almost pause for a moment. You want to you want to scratch your head and you want to say, well, God told Abraham that there would be this land and and he was to walk the boundaries of this. And and Abraham certainly didn't walk around the whole world. So how is it that Abraham is promised to be an heir of the whole world? We're going to kind of back up a little bit, and I want to kind of just lay some, some biblical groundwork for you. Uh, first, I think that it's faithful with the trajectory that Genesis itself sets, that the being the heir is not just about the local land, but about everything. Why do I say that? Well, Genesis 12:3, which we've also read, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Which, which suggests that this blessing of Abraham extends 
just beyond or beyond just the land that Abraham is being promised. Somehow, everybody's going to be blessed through Abraham. That's kind of the first hint, the kind of the first clue. Genesis 17:4, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it says, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So that says somehow from, from Abraham's descendants or Abraham's heirs are going to be a multitude of nations. And so you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, how's, how's God going to fulfill that? Well, we do know there's Ishmael and descendants of other nations that come from that. But I think more importantly, as you read the New Testament, Paul is talking or the Bible is talking about believers who come and have faith like Abraham. And we'll show that a few verses later in Romans. Also, Genesis 49.10, talking about Judah. It's a promise of the Messiah that he would come from the line of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, for the ruler's staff from between his feet, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all uh, of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's, it's this idea here that, that somewhere along the way, Judah is going to start ruling in Israel. But Judah, the tribe of Judah is not only going to start ruling in Israel, but she's going to start ruling. Whoever this ruler is that comes from her is going to start. Nations are going to come. They're going to flock in to know who God is and to come uh, before this king that God has put uh, and set up in the nation of Israel. And they'll obey him. It suggests that this king will rule the world. It's a, a messianic promise. And it's also, I think, a, a promise to fulfill some of the things given to Adam in his commission. Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 is sort of like a king in that context. There's sort of some imagery that goes on there, uh, that he's the king in the garden. And in the ancient world, actually, gardeners uh, were kings. Uh, you think of like the hanging gardens in Babylon. What did, what did rich kings do with their money? Well, they make gardens. So what does God do? He puts Adam and Eve, the, the king and the queen, if you will, in the garden to tend it for him. And then he says, subdue the whole earth. The Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic covenant is a carrying forth of some of the things that were given uh, to Adam. So those are some of the hints that you have in Genesis of this idea of the heir of the world. Then you could go to messianic promises in the Psalms. And we don't have time to go into all of them, but just Psalm 2.8 is the promise that the nations will be your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 72 verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a promise of the Messiah. Also, you have in the prophets, and we could go into a few verses in Isaiah and a few verses in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you have this hope of salvation going to the ends of the earth and the people of God inheriting all creation. I'll just read one verse for you, Daniel 4.27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. That's not the right verse. It should be Daniel chapter 7, verse uh, 27. Let's uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel uh, chapter 7. I put the wrong verse uh, in my notes. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. 
And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heavens shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and their dominion shall serve and, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. What Paul is doing is he's not just reading a few verses in Genesis. He's looking at the scope of Scripture. He's, he's doing what we might call a biblical theology. He's, he's pulling in a lot of the aspects of the promise so that, that God gives the promise to Abraham kind of like a seed. And then as more revelation comes along, that seed kind of begins to bloom like a plant and a flower. And you begin to understand this Messiah will come from Judah. And then you begin to see in the Psalms what he will do. And it, it all blossoms out of this promise to Abraham. And, and so as Paul looks back, he's just kind of in this one phrase that, that Abraham and his offsprings will be the heir of the world. He's kind of like reflecting on the whole storyline of Scripture. That this is what God promised Abraham. I would just, as an aside, suggest to you that, that if you are simply looking for uh, modern-day political solutions in Israel, if you are looking just for modern-day uh, expansion of the boundaries of Jerusalem all the way, or of Israel all the way up to the Euphrates and all the way down into the borders against Egypt, I, I would suggest to you you haven't read the whole of Scripture. The whole of Scripture, the hope is that the Messiah reigns over everything. The hope is not just some boundaries in the promised land, but that all of creation comes back into submission to God and His people through Abraham and His descendants, His spiritual descendants, rule over it and rule with the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises then, is ultimately about the Messiah and the God's people ruling over all creation. It's fulfilling the commands given to Adam and humanity in Genesis 1. So the promise then came not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Look again at verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. God makes this promise to Abraham and it is not conditioned on Abraham's ability to obey God. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Salvation being forgiven of our sins and then also inheriting all of God's creation is this wonderful gift that is received through faith. Paul says in Galatians 3, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Abraham is given this promise. In you all the nations shall be blessed. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. That is the promise. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham receive it? He trusted. He trusted. 
And he said, I've got no kids. My body is as good as dead. And we'll talk about some of that next week in Romans 4. But he said, okay, God, you've said it. You keep your word. It's going to happen. And then, 430 years later, just, just kind of put that in perspective. From our perspective, that would be before America was founded. Right around the time maybe a few people are landing uh, in America. Just, just think how long ago that was. We kind of sometimes I think we, we think about these things in terms of biblical numbers and we forget what it is kind of from our modern day. That's a long time. A lot can happen in 430 years. And the point is, Abraham had this salvation. He dies and is buried. And 430 years, then the law is given. When God's people are coming out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai, the, the promise does not come through the law because that's 430 years later. The promise was to Abraham and Abraham had it and he received it by faith. And it wasn't about anything that he did even in obedience to God, which, of course, we should obey God. So Paul says, if the promise then is only for those of the law, it is not from faith. Look at what he says. Verse 14. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and void. The promise is void. Because there's such this distance between when the promise is given and when the law comes on the scene, if it's only for people that follow the law, everybody up to the giving of the law, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons, Joseph, all of those people that were stuck in Egypt, none of them would have had salvation or the promise of God. Faith is void. What's the point? You see, the law does serve a purpose in God's plan. It tells us what God is like. It gives us the character of God. Paul will even say later, the law is good. You should read the Old Testament law. I I know some of it's tough and some of it's ceremonial things that we don't need to do today. But it's still God's word. But it serves a purpose. It serves the larger promise. And you don't get the promise. You don't get the grace of God, if I can put it that way, by simply obeying God. Because none of us ever do it enough. There would be little point then if in faith, if the, if the adherents of the law, if the adherents to the law were those of the law were the heirs. Why? One, because not even Abraham had the law in terms of the covenant given at Mount Sinai. Second, it's worth noting that in Romans 3.20, Paul already has said, by works of the law, no one will be saved. He says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So works of the law would be those things that we do in obedience But also, when he says the adherents of the law or those of the law, he's just talking about Jewish people, the the people that take on the the circumcision and seek to, to follow the aspects of the law. Like Paul says, you know, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As Paul has just said a few verses earlier, the adherents to the law, those who are Jewish, those who are circumcised, need to have 
faith like Abraham. The promise comes through faith. I want to pause for just a moment here and note how Paul is talking here then in a broader perspective than just the Jewish people or just the law. And I want to give you a sense of of the scope of God's plan. We read in Revelation that, that in heaven there will be people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation worshiping God. That is going to be amazing. Heaven is going to be the biggest multicultural worship service you have ever seen. And if we have fellowship meals, there'll be multicultural food there in heaven. But the new heavens and the new earth, we will be ruling and reigning and enjoying God's creation. Let me just say to you this, and and please don't misunderstand it, but salvation is more than just going to heaven when you die. Will you go to heaven when you die if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. And that is going to be awesome. But salvation, being forgiven of our sins, is so much more than just fire insurance. Get out of hell and go to heaven. We enter the glory of God. We worship God. We will delight in Him. We will receive these white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb as we sang. And we will get resurrection bodies one day. We will not just be spirits floating around. Although, yes, when you died here, your body goes in the grave, your soul goes to heaven. But that's like, that's like the temporary thing. It's going to be amazing to be in heaven as a soul. But it's going to be even more amazing when the resurrection happens. And then there will be this new creation. Once all sin is judged and put away, God will recreate the heavens and the earth. And we will be heirs of everything and co-heirs with Christ. And there will be this awesome city that doesn't need a son because the S-U-N son, because the glory of God is there. It is so much more than simply I go to heaven when I die. Should I look forward to that? Absolutely. Are there days where you want to just go home and be with the Lord? Absolutely. But keep in mind, that is, that is just kind of a, a train stop on the way to the end. And we become heirs of the whole world. And so when we talk about the gospel... Gospel means good news. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about Jesus being Savior and Lord. He is the King. This is part of the goodness of the Gospel. And you are inviting people to be saved. And and when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you go from being under the judgment of God, sentenced to hell, to the assurance of being justified, declared righteous, and going to heaven. But guess what? You now are an heir. You are adopted into the family. It's like having a millionaire or a billionaire show up at your doorstep and say, when I die, you're going to get a portion of everything that I have. On an earthly realm, I think a lot of us would think that'd be awesome. We'd be figuring out how we could take an early retirement, right? We'd We'd be, hey, can we hang out a little more? Can I get to know you? This is cool. But think about it in an eternal perspective. 
that the God who made all of creation and rules all of creation would send his son to be an heir in his humanity, the son of God becoming flesh, to not only save us, but to accomplish this being the heir, these messianic promises. And then, and then, say to us who are sinners and vile, if you just trust in me, all of this kingdom that you don't deserve and that I just won in my death and resurrection, you can come and partake of it. Adam sinned and fell from God. He was kicked out of the garden and in a sense lost his inheritance. And God says in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will make you guys heirs over the new heavens and the new earth. It's it's sort of going to be like we're all new Adam and Eves without the snake in the garden to tempt us. And we will be stewards of everything that God has. Who are we to deserve that? That is why it's a promise. And that is why salvation comes by grace and only by grace. And that's why it cannot come by the law. Because it was given as a promise. And if it's through the law, the promise and faith are void. If I could keep the law and just obey God, I really, in a sense, wouldn't have to trust Him. Now, if you want to be really technical, part of obeying God in the law is to put your trust in Him. But there is this sense, as Paul has been going through, that that if it's something that I earn, if it's a wage that is credited to me, if it's something that I contribute to this process, then it isn't a gift of grace. This is not God doing quid pro quo with us. You know, we do something for Him and so He gives us something back. This is the promise. And the only way to have it is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, this morning, you can only receive it then through faith since the promise rests on grace. This is probably where my previous sentences have gotten ahead of the point that I was going to make as number two. But um, so if I sound like I'm repeating myself, I, I might be a little bit. So when you think of the scope of biblical history, the law ultimately works wrath. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Uh, A transgression is a a specific identifier here of of sin. So it's like saying when you lay out the line, the boundary, then there's a mark that you can't cross. And if you cross it, you're a transgression. You've committed a transgression. So Paul's not saying sin didn't exist before the law. Sin sin was there. It's there from from the sin of Adam and Eve. But what he is saying is is the law dials it up a notch, if I can say that. It's not just sin now, but it's sin and law-breaking. It's sin and transgression. It spells out the boundary. So not only do you know what sin is, but it's like saying you are more culpable 
because you definitely knew what the rules were. It's sort of like with your kids. So you maybe teach them to eat healthy, right? And they know that they shouldn't eat cookies before dinner. They're just common sense that you hope would sink in. But as we know, kids are. They, they don't think in those ways. So then you spell it out. The rule is do not eat cookies before dinner. It intensifies it. It's now a, a transgression. They can't just say, well, I, I didn't know. Okay, yeah, that would make sense because I should have eaten healthy. But, but you never specifically said, you know, you say, no, I specifically told you. And it, and it sort of makes the offense worse is what Paul uh, is, is getting at. The law brings wrath. It lays out what the judgment is. It, it seals your fate, as it, it were, when you sin. So, Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Romans 3.20. The second half, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, sin, or excuse me, the law spells it out. And Paul's point is, the law is, is not to bring the promise The promise doesn't come through the law. The law points out the sin and the failure and the wrath that the people deserve to whom the promise was given. It it sentences us under condemnation so that we would recognize the only hope we have is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul talks this way in Galatians 3. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, and when Paul says before faith came there, he really means before Jesus came. He's he's kind of using faith as a way of speaking of faith in Jesus. So before faith in Jesus, Jesus is revealed. He says we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed, until the full revelation of the person we need to have faith in. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And there he's really clear what he's talking about when he says, until faith came. The law is a guardian, a a school teacher, somebody who's kind of in charge over you and can discipline you until Jesus comes. But Jesus is the heir. And when Jesus comes, those who believe in Jesus come out from being under the tutor in the sense of the judgment of the law and become the heirs because Christ wins the kingdom. So the promise depends upon faith because God is gracious. What what are we saying? Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on Upon faith. So the law works wrath. The law brings judgment. The law spells out what we should and shouldn't do, but we are sinners. And so it's a 
a guardian, a school teacher. And in that context, uh, that was a real negative connotation. Think of the images of, of like back in the day where school teachers would wrap your knuckles with the rulers. Uh, think of that kind of imagery of a school teacher. And you want to get out from under that. You want Christ to come so that he fulfills the law and you in Christ get the Holy Spirit and the law is now written on your hearts. How does that come to me? That comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why, Paul says, it depends on faith in order that the promise must may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the laws, but, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It depends on faith. What is the it? The it is the promise of God. This means that forgiveness of sins, the righteousness that we need to stand before God, and the promise that we would be heirs of everything only comes to us through faith. Why? Because it is a gift. This is what grace means. We didn't deserve it. We don't merit up to it or measure up to it. So God gives it to us. But He only gives it to those who are receiving it through faith so that He's saying it's not only to the adherents of the law, but it's to those who have faith like Abraham. So if you go back uh, to verse 12, he says that Abraham is made the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of our faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is everybody's father if you believe in Jesus Christ. Meaning, his seed, his offspring, the heirs of this promise to inherit the world is to everyone who has faith like Abraham, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of whether or not you were Jewish and circumcised on the eighth day. And, and you can imagine Paul walking into a synagogue and preaching this. And, and imagine the riot. Whoa, we have Moses and the law. How dare you throw this out? And Paul isn't throwing it out. He's saying it's been fulfilled. But you need to have faith like Abraham did. Don't put your trust in, in your circumcision or the way that you're living your life. Put your trust in Christ. And, and even in the church today, we sometimes get going in our life and we start to rely on ourselves. And we think that God is good to us because look at how we are, are keeping up with His standards. God is good to you because of His grace. Should I obey God? Should I follow His law? Should I have the Spirit in my heart and manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Absolutely. But you never do those things so that you can get things from God. And if you have this mindset of your, your Christian walk is, is maintaining a status with God and keeping God happy with you, you don't understand the, the riches of His grace that He has lavished on you in Christ. Is God pleased when we walk in His ways? Absolutely. But God has given us the ability to do that. And He has given us all things that we need because of 
His grace. And it's guaranteed to all who have faith like Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The only way to have righteousness before God, the only way to be an heir to all of these promises is to trust and believe in God and Jesus Christ and His salvation just like Abraham did. In effect, you stop working. You stop trying to say, well, the things that I do will curry favor with God. And you say, I need to receive what He has for me. God has been so good so good that it is those who trust in Christ who receive all of these blessings. And you ask yourself this morning, do I trust in Christ? Paul says to the church of of Corinth, uh, writing to a church, he says, examine yourself to see if you are in the Lord. Do you have a faith in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Have you received the promise that depends upon faith? That is, grace received as a gift from God. Do I believe? As we sang in the hymn, are you washed in the blood? Have you been to Jesus and His cleansing power? If you haven't, Believe in Him. Trust in Him. See that these gifts and blessings have only been accomplished through what Jesus did. And come to the foot of the cross and say, I want to be saved. If you're a Christian, if you can honestly in your conscience say, yeah, I I believe these things. The the next thing you can be doing in in terms of, of a checkup is... How are you walking? Paul talks about us walking by faith. That that we who once believed, we continue to practice that faith. And even as we are obeying God in our newfound Christian life, we are never trusting in our ability to obey. The Holy Spirit should be working out obedience, but but that obedience is we we are walking by faith. In other words, you will have situations in your daily life where you need to let go and trust God. It may be a stressful situation. It may be something that you are worried about. And you need to come before God and say, I need to trust you daily with this. Maybe you are are struggling against some sin, and that's a good thing to be fighting sin but you've kind of lost sight of where you are in this battle. And you are beating yourself up because you are saying to yourself, I am not good enough. God must really hate me because here I am, His child, and I can't even walk in His ways. Trust in the forgiveness of sins. 
don't give up the fight, right? We're not letting go and saying, well, I, I don't have anything to do now. I'll just live however I want. That is not what we're saying at all. But we are saying as you live this out, your security is Christ. Your identity comes from Christ. The, the, God's love for you, even as a believer, is, is not kind of like a light switch. Like sometimes He loves you and sometimes He doesn't. He doesn't flip back and forth in His perfect fatherhood and the love that He has for you. He loves you in Christ. Continue to trust in Christ and be assured of the status that you have in Christ. Just as a practical matter, if you're struggling in growing somewhere in your Christian life, pray to Christ. Ask Him for grace and mercy. Hebrews tells us that He is a gracious and merciful high priest and He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The one who is the Son of God struggled against the temptations of Satan in his earthly life and he did not sin. And so when you struggle against temptations, Jesus Christ can sympathize with you because in His humanity, He was just like us in every respect, yet without sin. But you walk by faith. You walk by faith. Third, this morning, God is the one who makes the promise to which we look and trust. Why is it that I can trust? I can trust because of the one in whom I am trusting. There are a lot of people that talk about faith. Faith is kind of a buzzword today, you know. People will say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm a person of faith. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I have faith. Well, faith isn't just this kind of cavalier cast everything out there. Faith is not like that scene in the last Indiana Jones or the last, the third Indiana Jones where he just like steps out onto that thing where he doesn't think there's anything there. Faith is, is looking and seeing the person of God and saying, I can rely on Him. And so Paul says, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls to existence the things that do not exist. So God made this promise to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. You will be the heir of the world. And Abraham believed God. But notice it says he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So there's two, th- three, th- four things maybe we can say from this. Look at how these two things apply to, to Abraham. So number one, Abraham and life to the dead. Abraham, Paul will say, his body was as good as dead. So Abraham having a kid and Sarah having a kid at that age was sort of like a resurrection. Abraham, in a sense, had one foot in the grave and was going to have no heirs to outlive him. And God gives him back life. Sarah has a kid. So that's number one. Second, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. I think that's a reminder 
uh, not only of some of the things going on with Abraham, uh, life into Sarah's womb, those sorts of things, but it's a reminder of God and his creating power. He speaks and it comes to exist. So that's number one. Number two, as, as you think about Genesis in the background, but it's also, I think, an allusion to what goes on in the gospel. Number three, who comes back to life in the gospel? Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer, right? This time it's okay to say Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is given life. So, so Paul is thinking back, but he's also thinking, if I can say it, forward. He's thinking back to Abraham, but forward to what Abraham would look to. Jesus Christ. God raises Jesus from the dead. And as a believer in Jesus, we are believing that. Number four, God also speaks into existence things that do not exist. Paul applies these aspects to our own salvation elsewhere. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God who let light shine, said let light shine in the darkness has shown the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ into our hearts. That our hearts are dark in sin. Our hearts are dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2. And what does God say? He speaks into existence that which is not there. Spiritual life. The gift of faith. He opens our eyes. We go from being dead in our sins to being made alive. And when we are made alive, we say, I see and I believe. We are trusting the God who has the power to do that. This is what God is like. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. To those who believe, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God is what raised Jesus from the dead. God spoke and Jesus came back to life. And the power of God, Paul talks in Ephesians 1, is what lifted Jesus up into heaven. Now, if we had a rocket ship, we could sail on forever and never get to heaven. Because heaven is where God dwells. It's beyond this earthly or universe of creation. But God, in His immense power, however He did it, took the resurrected Jesus Christ in His human body and, and opened the heavens and the earth, the heavens, and Jesus ascended up into it. How much power does it take to to rip open heaven so that Jesus can walk in? I don't know, but I imagine it takes quite a bit. It's something that only God can do is the point. But that power works in you in the gospel. It brings the promise, the gift, salvation, proclamation of righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, my trust in Christ, my being a future heir, 
my being united to Christ, my being adopted into the family, my having the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on. All of that is brought to you because of the power of God. The power that is at work in each one of us. The power that we need to pray would be at work through the preaching of the gospel. God is the one who makes the promise. God is the one who has the power to carry it forward. And in Jesus Christ, in His work, we trust in Him and His Father, the God of heaven and earth. The mystery of it, of course, is that Jesus is not only the Messiah, not only the Son of Man, so to speak, He too is the Son of God. The gospel then is about the majesty and glory of God. It's a picture. It's an announcement of how great God is. That he would not only redeem the world, but give the world to his children and to the Messiah who he sets as the leader of all of us. So that God's name would be praised. Why does God do all of this in the gospel at the end of the day God does it for his honor and his glory this is why Paul ending the doctrinal section of Romans in Romans chapter 11 says oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways would you come today And see the majesty of our great God. And say, I trust in Jesus. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made His salvation known. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth joyous into joyous song and sing praises. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the working that you have done. You have given this promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And we are unworthy of this promise. And we are unworthy of having Christ fulfill this promise for us and then uh, give it to us through his shed blood and his resurrected body. And yet you do this. Lord, give us confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ today that we will know that we can go to heaven when we die that we will know we can be in your presence, that we will know how much more of the glories and the riches of God await us in your presence forever and ever, without any sin, without any crying or sadness, all of the wounds and brokenness healed on a new heavens and a new earth. We praise you. And we want to give you glory now, just as in that day we will long to give you glory day after day. And as we sing in the hymn, we will know less days 
than to sing your praise than when we first begun. How we thank you, our great and mighty triune God, for your working of redemption. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to close with a, a hymn this morning.